Hey there, dear listeners, and welcome to the podcast Bound in Pale Leather, a podcast about the chronicles of the Kenserath. I'm Catherine. And I'm Gabe. All gates and hands be open to you. In this episode, we're talking about Chapter 14 of Dark of the Moon, Gathering Forces. Our trigger warnings for this chapter are betrayal, falling from a great height, and cliffhangers. <laughs> I think we're funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, Gabe. I'm going to get weird through this episode, guys. Uh, yes. I'm not a person today. <laughs> <laughs> Gabe, would you mind hitting us up with that summary? Hell yeah. This week, uh, Mark and James sort a few things out. Some defenses are planned and Graken makes a bad choice. Oh, we're going to talk about that. We it's a bad talk. decision. No, it is. Uh, for everyone. Okay. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Okay, everybody. Every single person involved. It's been literally a calendar month since we recorded and it's been a very hectic calendar month for both of us. Yes. So it's just, you're just going to have to kind of bear with us here, <laughs> this- folks. It's gonna be a weird one. We are both a little goofy from exhaustion on two different parts of the of um world. <laughs> I was literally more functional while I was drunk last night. <laughs> so 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 <laughs> oh, one important thing. We are celebrating our first year anniversary of the bo- podcast bound in pale leather. We are! This is going to come out a little bit before our first year anniversary because we released our first episode, I think, on like January 3rd or something. It was right after the start of the new year. But this is our first anniversary of recording date. Yeah. And I cannot fucking believe it. I know. Uh, If I'm being completely honest. It's been a year since you and I sat on the couch and we hemmed and hawed about sending a note to Ms. Hodgel saying, we'd like to do a podcast about your books. Would you be okay with that? And Yeah, we went out and asked for permission like fucking dinguses. (laughs) And she was very nice about it. She was like, I have literally never heard of someone asking for permission, but go buck wild, I guess. (laughs) And I... That was really nice of her because I did feel like an absolute goddamn idiot after she was like, you know that no one asks for permission, right? And I was like, yeah, that actually did occur to me like after you responded. Yes, but you know, I'm, I'm me. Anyway, we're going to jump into this chapter now because are you okay if we just dive in? Just, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Fuck yeah. I'm not here. I'm I'm like a husk of a human being right now. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. Okay. It's been five days since the previous chapter. And these five days have been comprised of travel. Torison and the host is traveling. Jame and Mark and Lyra are traveling. And everyone is converging on Herlin. And because of the relatively slow pace of the army as compared to the relatively quick pace of like a couple individuals on a boat, they all reach Herlin within, I think, a matter of hours of each other. Yep. And everyone who's going there, I did a count of this earlier and then I forgot to write it down. So it was Tori and the host. The Karkinor army, mm-hmm. Jaime and Mark, mm-hmm. and Graken, who is traveling alone with Kinslayer. Yeah. Fucker. Um, all right. And so <laughs> they reach, uh, the host reaches Karkinor, or, or good 
Christ, I'm not functional today. The host reaches Herlin just in time to see Karkinor setting up camp on the upper meadow, I believe. Mm-hmm. And the this this chapter is really great because it gives us a really clear. This is kind of a downbeat between the climax of last chapter and next chapter, which is all battle scene. Mm-hmm. Forty-one pages. I'm so hyped. Like I like this chapter. I'm excited to talk about it, but I'm like hyped out of my fucking mind to talk about the next chapter mm-hmm. I, i'm so pumped y'all <laughs> but so we get a nice layout in this chapter of the surroundings of herlin and like the cataracts specifically yeah. which are this series of waterfalls where the silver rushes down mm-hmm. to meet the river herlin mm-hmm. um and the tardy because this is where like the tardy and the herlin converge onto the silver and we get a nice layout so that in the next chapter when james says like okay i'm reaching the like i have to jump over these bar- barricades on the lower hurdles or whatever we know what the fuck that is yep. Yep. and we can kind of picture it in like a, a layout of the rest of everything so the camps are on the upper meadow Mm-hmm. on either side of Herlin is built on like a series of islands from mm-hmm. what I can tell. That's correct, right? Yeah, it is. My brain is so fucking crunchy right now. The way that it's arranged is that it's on a hill, but it's also you have to cross the river Herlin in order to get to Herlin. Yeah. And so on the near side are all of the all of the pastures that where the sheep would be grazing. And I love this line. Not one white back broke the green expanse now. I just love yeah. that 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 absence. Of course, all of the sheep have been brought into Hurlin in the event that there's a siege. Hurlin is fucking prepped, by it, the way. They are so ready. Because they. It, it's mentioned that basically every civilian they could get their hands on, everyone within a certain radius of Hurlin has been brought into the city. Mm-hmm. A, for protection, and B, because Herlin is getting fucking rich off of this one war. Because- That's hugely important. That's the majority of their economy. Yeah, because the important detail about Herlin and how Herlin works is that Herlin is a trade center, and their Mm -hmm. primary thing is dispatching and managing goods being ferried up and down the rivers. Mm -hmm. So, of course- a, the cataracts are the perfect bottleneck to catch three million people because yep. at their widest on the upper meadow, it's only two miles wide. Yeah. Which sounds like a lot if you're like thinking about having to do the mile run in gym class or whatever, but it's not that much to march an army through. Yeah. Like we talked about the line of march for the host goes back 10 miles and mm-hmm. there's only 50,000 of them. Mm-hmm. There's three million of the horde. Mm -hmm. So like, it's the perfect place to cause a bottleneck. And Herlin was clearly like, hell fucking yeah, bring your soldiers here. Yep. Bring your soldiers here. Buy our goods. Pay us for ferry rides. Yep. Rent out space for your lords. Like, do it. We're gonna make bank. And they are. Yeah. But the other advantage to bringing all of their people into the city is that because Herlin is on the island in between the rivers, they can bring up their drawbridges and become functionally impenetrable yep yeah so they brought all of the sheep into the city they've brought 
all of their basically all the food and beverage they have they've collapsed the entire surrounding landscape into a couple square miles of island yep which you know is it's good tactics i'm going to talk about this a lot during the chapter it's all very good tactics i i love me a good combat planning session Mm -hmm. and this chapter is just so good i love it so much and there's one other thing that is important about this which is that herlin is in the center of these rivers and i think it it may actually just be the tardy and the silver yeah but just beyond the ferries where the silver the river silver and the river tardy meet there are it says there is a lake studded with about 30 islands all of which have been hollowed out and they're guessing people in the area are guessing that they were hollowed out as dwellings for some long forgotten religious order but the work is far cruder than the builders and it's far older than the builders and no one knows who it's from fuck is up yeah yeah no one knows who made it it is this kind of alien history which will become important but I I love this this conglomeration in this area of this huge economic city, uh, this center of trade, and then also this ancient ruin that holds this mystery. Yeah, Herlin is. Uh, this is the other thing that we're really like imp- that's really impressed on us over the course of this first introduction to Herlin is that this place is old as fuck. Yeah, it's been cultivated and filled with magic and power since before Grimley says not just long before the Kenserath came to Rithilien, but before Grimley's people even learned to walk on yeah. their hind legs. Yeah. But so we get the reason we're waxing a little poetic about this now is because it's going to save us a lot of time later in this chapter when we're like, and then we get some more like important details about how Herlin is laid out and how the cataracts are laid out and how the hurdles are laid out. And because, like, a lot of this chapter is set up for the next chapter, not just in the sense of, like, literally planning for the battle, but also in the sense of, like, prepping the reader to be able to follow. Yeah. So we're gonna kind of front load with rambling about Herlin and the design of this setup and, like, how everything is arranged, and then we're gonna kind of get on with our lives. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about Herlin? Yeah. Oh, the one thing I did want to mention is I think this place probably looks cool as hell, and I really want to see it animated in, like, a Miyazaki kind of style, because the way that the city is designed is that sort of like Titastagon, they ran out of space to build out when they hit the hit the rivers mm-hmm. so they built everything up so the entire city is this like collection of wooden spires connected yeah. by catwalks yeah oh it sounds so fucking cool it really does and so for G- anyway i'm not not gonna talk about jane yet we're gonna talk about tori right now that's yes. who we're gonna talk about so i love the intro to tori in this Carry on. Can I talk about Harn throwing shade about the Carcanorians? Uh, can I talk about Tori being a terrible patient first? Y- yeah, no, because Harn actually throws shade before we find out what a terrible patient Tori is. Oh god, yeah, he calls them amateurs. He calls- he's- Harn is like- Torison looks at the- at the Carcanoran- Carcanoran- say it for me. Carcanoran army. Thank you. So he looks down on all of them who are all camped out. They're all in these tents. And Tori comments that, oh, they they finally made it there. And he asks Harn, how many do you think are there? And Harn is like, eh, maybe 10,000. 
Not too bad, considering they have no standing army. Still, we'll see how long this lot stands when things get lively. Amateurs. Ha! And I just love that Harn has no patience for them at all. I love that the Kenserath really consider anyone who isn't a career soldier from a society of career soldiers hailed universally as the finest warriors in the world is an amateur. Yeah, I love if that. If you don't meet all of those criteria, like, you suck. <laughs> I love, and I really, really love that so much. It's, it's like, there's a lot of arrogance in the Kenserath purely because they, they really do have kind of a savior complex, and it's understandable why they do in the sense of they literally are designed to save the world. Mm -hmm. But also, like, you gotta, you gotta know that's annoying to deal with. Oh god, yeah. But this specific kind of arrogance is very charming to me. <laughs> I think so too. So after we actually, like, get to see Tori, not just, dis like, overviewing the surroundings and discussing the Karkinorans with Harn, but you know, as himself, we get a little bit of a sense of what he's been doing for the last five days, which has been apparently recuperating <laughs> and trying to like beat Burr off with a stick <laughs> because Burr is so goddamn determined to like get <laughs> Tori to take care of himself. The line is, the High Lord's tent was barely up before Burr began pressing Tori's into rest and for this solicitude, he got a ringing snub. Yeah. Tori's over it. The first scene we get between Tori and Burr here is Burr showing up with a what's called a posset, which incidentally, Tori talks about hating these, and I don't blame him because it's milk that's been curdled with wine, Ugh. which sounds like the most unpleasant shit in the world. There's usually other herbs in there as well, I'm sure there are here, but like, fuck no. Yeah. Hard pass. Yeah. I don't know. It might be one of those things where like, if you grow up with it, it's fine. But mm -hmm. I personally don't really like wine. <laughs> it's so bitter, I can't handle it. And anything that involves curdled milk makes me a little queasy. Yep. But so, like, everyone around Tori who knows what went down is absolutely, like, on tenterhooks keeping mm -hmm. an eye on him. Mm -hmm. Even Kendry, who is still kind of too nervous to approach him directly, mm -hmm. has been, like, watching Tori, waiting for him to, like, fall down dead, basically. Yep. And Tori, who really doesn't have a good sense of what happened is just like, hmm, no, like it was an unpleasant evening, but like, I feel good. I don't remember yep. anything of the nightmare that I was avoiding. Don't want to talk about it. I got some sleep. I feel well rested. I like my leg isn't bothering me anymore. The worm's venom is finally gone. Seems good. Like yep. all, all seems well, but he's gotten so nervous about everyone kind of like staring at him and so aggravated because he just wants to forget what happened mm -hmm. that He's just started brushing Burr off. I do want to mention he it's it's noted that one of the things that happened over those five days that get lapsed is that he notices that Kendry looks unwell. Oh, I'm so glad you're gonna talk about this. Kendry always looks kind of unwell. Yeah. But like it just it took so much out of him to heal yeah. Tori and Jame that Tori realizes how sick he looks and rides over and like demands if he's feeling okay. <laughs> Which I have to think that, like, for Kindry, who has acknowledged repeatedly that Torison will go to almost any lengths to avoid him, 
Has to have been a weird conversation. Yeah, yeah. Especially since Tori is clearly in a really crappy mood about it all. Yeah. And this little interaction between Torison and Burr when when Burr mulishly offers a posset and Torison snaps at him. And I love that. I love that Burr just holds his ground. He just stands there. And and it's it states that Burr's expression was scarcely sweeter than the posset. <laughs> so there's just he will not be moved. <laughs> yeah, and Tori finally gives in and he's like, Alright, I've been rude enough for one day, but conveniently, he does get called away before he has to drink the posset. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But he gets called away by Prince Odalian. Oh yeah. I yeah. We know who this is. This is really cool. I th- this is actually really cool. I don't want to mention it as like a writing technique because I one of the things that has been kind of a subject of discussion lately in the media centric world is that a lot of movies especially are very hung up on the concept of like protecting against spoilers being the mm-hmm. end all and be all of a successful movie. Like there's a lot to be said about the MCU in this in mm-hmm. spe- in particular. Because the MCU is so desperate to keep spoilers out of the public eye that -hmm. they will have their actors record a scene and they will only give them the lines for that one scene. They won't give them the whole script. There's a lot to unpack there. But the top thing about it is that it, it means that the movie's really rely enormously on like the shock value of a good twist to carry the day because it's like it's hard to maintain consistent like characterization and you know emotional arcs if you're basically assembling a movie like a jigsaw puzzle yeah yeah and i think that this is really cool because this like the revelation that odalian is tyrandus could have been the center of the like final confrontation like the entire rest of the book could have orbited around the revelation that odalian is actually tyrandus but instead having it on the table early means that we're a lot we're differently invested in this like Mm -hmm. instead of it being a matter of like us getting attached to this nice young lord with a diffident manner like who's looking to become a subject ally of the Kenserath because he wants to help them out and who's you know grateful to be included and like all of these things instead of you know getting attached to that character and then being upset and shocked when we discover he's long dead Mm -hmm. instead of that we're looking at it from the outside with this sense of impending doom where we yeah. see Torison disregard his instinct to distrust Odalian over and over again yeah. literally three times on this first page that I yeah. have like I have so much of it marked out that I finally underlined Torison's internal monologue being like you know my unease about this is just Ganth talking like I'm just you know I've internalized my father's bitterness so I'm gonna try to be open-minded I literally underlined it with Tori what the fuck yeah yeah because we know what is going on here the sense of dread Mm -hmm. is so effective and it's so powerful and there's a lot to be said for instead of 
having the climax of the book orbit around like a shock twist and like a surprise ending Mm -hmm. that is ruined by a spoiler instead of that having it orbit around like an emotional drive like we have spent so much time with jane we have such a good sense of how much she loves tori we have such a good sense of how much she wants to protect him Mm -hmm. and how dire the outcome could be if she fails because of all that we're able to look at this whole thing with much more emotional investment because if this was presented as a shock twist no matter how charming odalian is at most he would be present for three chapters yeah that's not enough time to like really 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 get committed to him as a character Mm -hmm. so instead having the twist ending be like oh god but like is jame gonna make it in time Mm -hmm. like she trusted graykin to warn tori and we see from this very first meeting that tori does not know yeah that's so it's it's not like more effective but because so much of like the media that is produced these days is created around like the spoiler mentality like Mm -hmm. the idea that knowing the twist ending is going to spoil the media it feels really like different and fresh in a way that i would fucking love to see more of yes it's really really refreshing applause well said because It does, Ms. Hodgel trusts her audience in a way to know that the audience can truly hold the amount of dread that this scene presents. Yeah, because like this scene really does, it's rough to read because Tori's a smart guy. We know he's a smart guy. We've watched him be a very competent war leader for all of his other issues. And like when he first meets, first sees Odalian standing in the shadow of his tent door, He's like, ooh, I have a bad feeling about this guy. Like, I don't yeah. know why, but like, mm, I have a ba- bad vibes. Don't yep. like him. Yep. And then, you know, when Odalian makes the offer to, if they succeed in helping the Kenserath turn the Horde back, he wants Karkinor to be made a subject ally, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically a vassal. Mm-hmm. And that's that's huge. And Tori acts like he reacts with surprise and confusion because he's like, that would make you, that would make me your boss. Yeah. Are you sure? That would make me your immediate superior. Mm-hmm. And he's like startled and a little confused by that request. And then again, like he's talking about how how it would be the only option because the council wouldn't approve Karkinor as a full ally. And this is where he does what I mentioned before, where he kind of decides that he's determined to be open-minded yep. and he's determined not to like channel his father's paranoia and bitterness. And like that's a completely rational decision from his from where he's at. Makes total sense. Like this decision's not based in idiocy. It's not based in, you know, rash choices Mm -hmm. everything we know says that this should be a completely like completely acceptable train of thought Mm -hmm. but because we know the secret we know what's up and more than that we know that tori was supposed to be told Mm -hmm. we have this sense of doom that is just it's so effective and engaging and i i i personally like that more than a twist ending yeah yeah like that's a matter of taste at the end of the day and don't get me wrong i've enjoyed a good twist ending in my day but like something where no you know all the pieces and you just have to watch them all move with Mm -hmm. this inexorable approach toward a bad ending i find that 
more satisfying. Yeah, yeah. On that point, may I share some things? Please do. It's so interesting to me that Odalian is described as being timid or yeah, diffident. Yeah, diffident, I think is the word on that On two different used. times in rapid succession. And to have that timidity, which we saw in the last chapter, his last words are even about how weak he is and how he just hasn't yeah. been very strong. So we know that Odalian was actually a, a fairly timid fellow. And to have that description, which is very clearly outlaid in Tori's experience of Odalian, paralleled to the person that we know is Tyrandus pushing for ally status, ratcheting up all of his desires to be connected with Torison, he makes the suggestion, four different suggestions of how he could become directly connected to the Kenserath ending with bloodbinding. It takes Torison off guard, and this is all in the first few minutes of a conversation where he goes from being a stronger connection would be even more beneficial. I'm thinking about a subject ally. What about a full ally? How about bloodbinding? And he just presses the point so aggressively, which seems to be in the polar opposite of someone who's very timid and very diffident. Well, I think it's interesting because one of the only other things that we're really told about Odalian prior to meeting him, mm -hmm. which I think we can all agree, Odalian is not at his best when we meet him. <laughs> he is not. For he's all had a five really... pages that he's, he's alive. Oh, poor guy. One of the only other things we're told about him is that he cares a lot about his people mm -hmm. and that he's kind of enamored of the Kenserath. Yeah. So while this is a little pushier than I think that Odalian himself might have been, it's not so pushy as to be immediately suspect. Mm -hmm. I think that knowing nothing about who Odalian is, you could absolutely read this section and just be like, hey, this motherfucker raised a 10,000 man army from a country that doesn't have an army. Yeah. Pretty much just because you asked nicely. Yeah. He didn't have to do that. So, you know, yeah, of course he wants something out of it. Of course he wants, like, a contract of some kind, because we just heard about how there isn't a mutual defense contract, like, clause in his contract with Lyra. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's it makes complete sense from that perspective that he's pushing for this and that he's, like, well-versed in ways to circumvent the council's nerves on the matter and ways to, like, prove himself. And mm -hmm. all of those things make complete sense and it's yep. understandable that Torison's like I will consider this yep I'll bring it up with the council and like God knows you've earned it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but from our perspective we're just sitting here and we're like oh, Tori <laughs> this is not safe this is not yes. a safe person like for all that this looks completely innocent the knowledge of what is coming yeah. and the knowledge the explicitly stated knowledge of Tyrandus's plan is fucking spine tingling. Yeah, it really because, is. Because like, you know, I every time I read this section, I harp on the the conversation he has with Jame, where she furiously demands to know if 
he would chain Tori in the depths of the house as well. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, like, I would never do that to one of my lady's children. I would never do that to one of you. Like, you know, you're going to die here of the worm's venom and Tori will die quietly within an hour of the rites, like, mm-hmm. as painless as possible. Mm-hmm. And, like, the knowledge that that sort of, like, cold tragic mercy is what's sitting across the table from Torison. yeah is goddamn chilling yeah and it's so effectively done and i yeah i i love this trope of like the reader is in on the secret Mm -hmm. and you just have to watch i love that yeah it's one of my favorite like narrative devices and this this book does such a phenomenal job with it It really does. And this chapter is a chapter where, in my mind, I think of this chapter as a chapter of parallels. We have the parallel of Odalian and Tori, and then we have the parallel of Tori's self-reflection of his hesitancy and how he dismisses his hesitancy, but he also maintains a certain self-reflection about it. And then we have Caneron who has a moment of hesitancy, but pushes it aside because he knows that he is always right. Yeah, that's a very good description of what, like, Caneron's fucking ultimate downfall here is. Yeah, and I think that one of the, in fact, the thing I love the most about this chapter is the parallels that it not only draws within the chapter itself, but also the parallels that it aligns for all of the chapters that have come before. And I really value that, that right after Torison and Odalian have their conversation, when Torison manages to demure the whole blood ally status is, is to say, well, let's see if we survive the battle and then we'll talk. Which is super fair, to be super honest. Super fair, super fair. And at that point, Caneron shows up and he walks in and notices Odalian's face and his hesitancy is because his son-in-law's eyes, were they always gray? Yes, of course they were always gray because I have an excellent memory. And for us, the reader, it creates just an even greater sense of that suspense because we know why Odalian's eyes are silver. We know that now. Yeah. And like, it's just, it's very well done. The suspense is really compelling. Yes. And so the the council arrives at Torison's tent. Yes, mother? Holly shows up. Yes. Um, I, I love, love, I love it. Holly so much. Oh my God. Beautiful boy. The council comes into Torison's tent and they're all very serious and they're all, this is all very diplomatic. And then Holly comes in. Holly's late because... He's been riding three miles to the edge of the escarpment. Is that is that how you say that word? I've, I'm realizing yeah. I've only ever seen it written. I think so. I think that so. sounds right. But, yeah. you know, you and I are both stoned on exhaustion, so <laughs> what the fuck? But what I love so much is that I imagine that Holly is a little bit like a golden retriever puppy who, like, bursts into the tent. And he's, like, so excited. He says, the horde is in sight. He describes it as a black carpet covering the plain. Because just to give context, the escarpment is is this cliff that oversees the plain. Yeah, let's actually take a quick beat to discuss this. There's a map of the cataracts in mm-hmm. the start of the book mm-hmm. for those of you who are interested in looking at a map. But so the way that the cataracts are laid out is... One second. There we go. 
So the way it's laid out is that there's the upper hurdles, and that's like a set of small cliffs, ledges carved into the hillside. And then there's the upper meadow, which is the host's encampment. And then there's the lower hurdles, and then there's the middle meadow and the lower meadow. And then there's a straight up and down cliff called the escarpment that drops down to below the waterfall. And basically the only way up is a set of stairs called the Mendelin Steps. Mm-hmm. And that's where they're planning to bottleneck the horde. Yep. And this next section features them like overlooking the forest and the meadows. The Karkanoran camp is on the other side of the silver. And then Herlin is on the other side of the silver and the tardy. So mm-hmm. like they're they're kind of staggered around the rivers. Yeah. And the unspoken understanding is that if the horde makes it through the upper meadow, like they're done. Yep. They won't be able to stop them anymore because that's just too much space to hold off. Mm-hmm. And also because if they make it to the upper meadow, they will have overrun the host's camp. Yeah. And so... Can you describe where the woods are on the middle field? Yeah, the woods stretch down the meadows and the hurdles on the west. Mm-hmm. And then there's another bluff behind the woods. Okay. And the reason why I bring up the woods is because that becomes pertinent as yeah. the war guard or the, the council goes to the escarpment so yeah so the council goes out to look at the escarpment because danny or holly my beautiful idiot boy (laughs) he just he's he's very game for like new experiences including seeing the horde at close range he's like oh tori you should see it you should see it and tori who has not been lighthearted a day in his goddamn life is like well we all should and like drags the entire fucking council and every single one of their goddamn war guards all the way out to the escarpment to look over the mendelin steps and their impending doom Yes. There's two things that I really want to mention before I want to talk we... about the Randons. <laughs> so fucking funny to me. Before we talk about the Randons, again, I love the parallel in the council because we have, you know, the council is all in Tori's tent. Everybody is very serious. Danny or shows up like a hyperactive golden retriever puppy and is super excited about the horde, so which, he de- which he describes as a black carpet covering the plane. And Caneron freaks out. He has this moment of panic. He spills his wine. He shouts that we have to arm the camp. And Danior seriously throws shade at Caneron and gives him a scornful look, which I think is just really powerful because Danior is young enough that he doesn't, he's, he is not political. He's not a diplomatic savvy politician. He also has a relatively secure position, which is rare in the Kenserath because as long as Tori doesn't get himself killed... Yep. Danny Orr's good. No one yep. in his house is trying to depose him. Yeah. Like, his house is very small. He takes good care of his people. They're not looking to murder him. Mm-hmm. The only reason he is of value is that he is the High Lord's only relative. Yep. Yep. So as exactly. long as Tori is alive, his political value is completely hypothetical and he doesn't need to worry that much. Exactly. And so he can throw that level of shade. And yeah. so all of them get up onto the, get up onto their things and you go ahead and talk about the randons because god so first of all we're told that caneron is out here with 50 goddamn people as his war guard which Mm -hmm. like that's so 
Like, I understand that these are very important folks, but, like, that must be so difficult to get around with in any sort of, like, quick and efficient manner. Yeah. As evidenced by the fact that all of the lords of the council have their own war guard with them. Danior only has 10, Kaneron has 50, and everyone else is somewhere in the between. Mm -hmm. Plus Odalian's retinue, Mm -hmm. so they're already at a pretty good number. And Torison also has his war guard with him, which you will remember he has fought Harnon tooth and nail every step of their trip down the river road. And what that has resulted in is that he has 20 of his best fighters with him, and they're all trying their best to look as inconspicuous as possible (laughs) because... Harn sat every single one of them down and was like, if you so much as fucking trip the High Lord, he will immediately get rid of all of you and die. (laughs) Because Harn has no faith in Tori not dismissing all of his war guard on a whim 12 hours before the start of the biggest battle of the century. Yep, yep, exactly. And I just, I'm so charmed by that. I'm so... Like, I'm so delighted by the fact that, like, all of Tori's Kendar are just like, please, God, we appreciate that you're, like, so unbelievably well-mannered for a highborn. Mm-hmm. You take such good care of your people. You worry so much about treating everyone well. That's great. But if you could be, like, a little bit more of an arrogant jackass sometimes <laughs> and just be like, hey, yeah, I'm the High Lord. I fucking deserve a war guard. Yeah. Treat yourself to a yeah. fucking protection detail, my dude. <laughs> I I love, there's nothing I love more than watching Kendar fight tooth and nail to make Jame and Tori act like a lord and a lady for five seconds. Yeah, that's just, just give them this one thing, please. Please cooperate for five minutes, my lord. Yes. We get a, a deeper glimpse into the Randon, which, you know, will come up in, in a little bit. I love the North Randon so much. They're all just <laughs> doing their goddamn best out here. And yet. And yet. And yet. Dun, they're dun. trying to juggle these two jackasses. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny to me. <laughs> it really is. It's fantastic. Anyway, I just really wanted to talk about that. I'm a little punchy. <laughs> That's yeah, with good reason. So as the council and their war guard are going over to the escarpment, they are crossing the middle field, which is narrow to the bottleneck, hemmed in by a river on one side and woods on the other. Yeah, basically, sorry, Um, I just wanted to mention the upper meadow is two miles across and then it narrows all the way down to the lower meadow, which is like less than half a mile across, which narrows even further to the Mendelin steps, which are like, Mm, two or three people. It's a little bit like I'm uh, I'm totally going to blank on the name of the war with the Spartans and the oh, Assyrians. Oh, the Peloponnesian. Yes. Is yes. that right? No, I don't think it is. Yeah, no, the 300. Yeah. 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 We yeah. are Sparta. Yeah. You know, basic tactics for being a very small group trying to stop a very large group. Absolutely. And so they've they've set everything up because they of course they know the lay of the land. So they're aiming for the bottleneck that will allow them to get to the escarpment to see the horde. On their way there, when they passed forest, the individual trees were really hard to distinguish. It's almost as if there's a mist or some kind of blurring of the reality between the council and the war guard and the forest. When the rabbits are startled by the horses, they jump towards the cover of the forest, of the woods, 
only to stop at the very last moment as if they run into a wall. And every time I read this, I remember from the movie Independence Day when they have, when they show, uh, I can't remember if it's Independence Day or if it's the movie Signs, a bird flying along and then suddenly hitting this invisible wall. And so it's almost- I haven't seen if, either of those movies recently enough to know. So it's almost as if there is this guard, this invisible guard around the forest. And that's going to become capital pertinent very soon. Capital pertinent? Capital P pertinent. It's going to become capital P pertinent pertinent very soon. English is hard tonight. <laughs> okay. Clearly, we need to record in the mornings. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody, everybody gets to the escarpment. They all climb off their horse. And everyone just kind of stands there in like awe for a minute. Uh, I want to talk about the horde. Yeah. I want to talk about the Horde because ever since I saw Mad Max Fury Road. Yes. Yeah. This. Yes. The scene of, of the sandstorm with all of the lightning. That's exactly what I was going to bring up. That's exactly what I picture. That is what follows the Horde. The Horde brings their own weather systems yeah. with them. So the like healthy green of the plants turn to this drought stricken yellow as it approaches the horde. Mm -hmm. And the horde is traveling under this massive storm cloud yeah. that just sweeps across the land above them. Incidentally, as a note, so the horde circles through Perimal Darkling. This was mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And one of the only other places where we're given a description of a like cloud of lightning like this, where like it's just fine, 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 and then just a flat wall of storm cloud with lightning going up the face is the barrier. Yeah. Yes. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. We have a clear first eye view of the bear of the barrier from yeah, like last James chapter. Yeah, was just there. Yeah. And so is Kendry. Yeah. So I mean, so was Tori, sort of. So <laughs> he was in denial while he was there. But yeah. <laughs> but so the, everyone just sort of stops and stares out over this, like, ocean of black in front of them. And then I love Brandon to death. Oh, yes. Brandon is beautiful. He's so great because... He just looks out over it and says, now that is moderately impressive. Mm -hmm. No mm -hmm. Brandon has ever been impressed about anything in their lives, and I love them for it. Yeah. Like, I, this goes back to my whole, like, House of, World of Hats theory about the Kenserath. But, like, Brandon are reliable. Like, mm -hmm. steadfast Brandon. That's, like, mm -hmm. their whole jam, and their lord is such an epitome of it. Mm -hmm. And he's... <laughs> He goes, so what do we do about it? And Grimly goes, go home? I love, I love Grimly. He's so great. And without skipping a beat, Brandon just answers him as if this is just a normal conversation. Tempting, but not practical. <laughs> yeah, and this is, the, this is the great breakdown of how the tactics are planned out in such a way that the reader understands what the fuck is going on during the chaos of the battle in the next chapter. Before we get there, can we please talk about Kaneron again? Because I think that the, again- Is it about how he's the worst? He's the worst, but I love the way that Kaneron is presented as being the worst because we've seen Kaneron in kind of creepy context. But we really haven't had a sense of him in parallel with the other lords. Again, 
I love about this chapter, which sets up these relational parallels so beautifully, is we have reliable Brandon, we have Wolver, and then we have Caneron, who is peevish in the face of almost like he's pissed at Torison for having brought them here to be in a situation where Caneron cannot be the most impressive person on the field. Yeah, 100%. That's exactly what's up. My sense in reading this is that what's so powerful about this presentation of Caneron in this way is that it really highlights that Caneron needs to be the most impressive person on the field of play at any given yeah. time. He's obsessed with optics. And if he's not the most perceived as being the most important and impressive person on the field of play, he will attack the person who actually is the yeah. most powerful on the field of play. So that's, I think, something that's really powerful. And it's incredibly important for me in understanding of all of the books. And I don't think this is a spoiler because... This is how, from this foundation, we're able to see Kaneron in a way that the reader is informed by what they've read, rather than the author telling the reader what they should feel. Yeah. And I really love that about this. All right, carry on. So we get kind of a rundown of what the plan is for how to hold the horde. And this is great because it's a very like, it's it comes off as brainstormed and it's a great cross section of who in this group is actually helpful. Mm -hmm. Because the people who actively contribute to the plan are Danior, Torison, Komen, the Adir, mm -hmm. Twins, and then Kyrian. Yep. And Ardeth, although largely in the capacity of keeping people in line. Randir and Kaneron are active hindrances mm -hmm. to this mm -hmm. planning session. But the plan comes together as, like, there are three places to stall the horde, and basically what they're planning to do is try to hold each line, and then as each line breaks, fall back and retreat to the next point. Yep. So they're going to start on the stair at the Mendelin Steps, and then the lower meadow, and then mm -hmm. the first set of hurdles. Yep. And Tori is like, yeah, absolutely. That's the best plan. If they make it to the upper meadow, we're definitely going to lose. Like, that will yep. be overrun immediately. So we need, like, barriers on each flight of stairs to slow their ascent, etc., etc. And Kyrian is the one who finally brings up, like, kind of the elephant in the room or the three million strong army in the room, as it were, because she's like, there are three million of them. If they just keep coming, they can climb each other's bodies to get over any barriers we put in place. Like, what are we going to do? Yeah. And this is where Randir proves himself to be mm, a pain. Mm -hmm. Because he his response is, it would perhaps be better if those without experience held their peace. And Tori's just like, uh, you're really going to enjoy finding out that that's a woman you're talking to, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and Ardeth, like, kind of shuts Randir down and he's like, you know, obviously this, this is a very good point. Like, mm -hmm. we're not going to be able to stop them dead. We're not going to win this in a pitched battle. All we have to do is try to turn them one way or the other. If we turn them into the West, we can force them into the Southern Wastes, where, like... Yeah. Some of their number will be eradicated by starvation and exposure, yep. and then they will run straight into, hopefully, the Carnides, who obliterated the host at Urukarn. Yep. And then if they manage to turn them the other way, there's a country called Necrian, mm -hmm. which we don't know anything about, but it's run by someone called the Witch King, 
who Ardeth, the political mastermind of the day, says he would not want to tackle in his own territory, even with an army three million strong. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, they kind of stand around and debate, like, how they're gonna do that. And Tori's like, we can't kill so many that they'll turn around. A, we're just not gonna kill that many of them. And B, even if we killed a million of them, we need to consider that they've been united by something. All of these tribes have hated mm-hmm. each other forever. We, like, ideally, we need to know why they're... working together and then strike at that Mm -hmm. and this is where odalian steps in Mm -hmm. because clearly he's got orders pertaining to this yep and he says that these abstractions are rather beyond me and perhaps they would like to continue in the hospitality of his camp yeah i just every time odalian talks i'm just like "Mm, you're really good at this yeah and yet there was this momentary slip. And I think that this momentary slip really matters because among the council, there's all of this uh, strategizing about battle tactics. But Torison is the one who brings it down to the point that if, if they learn what's uniting them, then that could be essentially their leading edge. And Odalian was half started at these words. And I think that that's intriguing because we know that Tyrandus, who is as old as old can be, is basically the master of sneaky diplomacy. He is a randier and a north and... A very dangerous combo. It's such a dangerous combination. And this seems to me to be a moment of, of shock that's almost out of character. And I think part of what is almost out of character about this is because just to think about the amount of pressure that's under Tyrandus in this point where he is, for honor's sake, obeying his lord's orders and for honor's sake, doing everything that he can to stop his lord. And this little whippersnapper of a kid is the one who actually acknowledged that something's uniting the horde. So that, I think, is really powerful. I think even more than that, Tyrandus raised Jame. Mm-hmm. He knows her very well. Mm-hmm. I don't think he expected Torison to be as clever as she is. Yes, yes. Yes, like, I think so. He expected a lot of Torison because, like, he knows, you know... If nothing else, he's like, well, this guy did survive three years pretty much unsupported as High Lord. So, like, yep. props to that. He did survive, like, 15 years kind of flying solo among the Southern Host. So, kudos. Mm-hmm. But that this is a very good call from Torison, yeah. And I think Tyrandus has a moment of, like, oh, that's right. Yep. Your sister did recently just, like, manage to escape the Master's house pretty much unaided Mm -hmm. so you're both like this huh yeah that's right because he would be thinking of the last time yes he thinks she's still there Mm -hmm. and torison sends the council off with odalian and he's like all right you guys like go i'm gonna like i'll follow you later and then he stops grimly and he's they have they have a really nice conversation about when Tori served in the Southern Host and they were friends there because Tori says, you've never commanded a really big battle before, have you? And Tori is like, ooh, nobody's command like, nobody's commanded a battle this big, Grimly. Yeah. But he was only a 100 commander at Urukarn. Mm-hmm. He only had that position because he was highborn and everyone thought he was, uh, like, Ardith gave him that post. Yep. And as the commander of the Southern Host, 
they weren't inclined toward pitched battles. That wasn't like mm-hmm. where they were at, at mm-hmm. in a sociopolitical state ending. So mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is kind of new territory for everyone. And as the two of them like start to walk back up the meadows, Tori stops and he's like, you said a long time ago when we were, you know, drinking and talking about the ethics of love and war in the Crothan gar- in Crothan's guardroom, which I love that description of their friendship, by the way. Yeah. He says that Grimley had said that if he ever came this way with Tori, he would show Tori something very old and very special. This is how we end up going into the woods, because Tori makes the very good point of like, even if Grimley was drunk when he made this offer, which he was extremely. He was. They're about to face a battle of three, like against an army of three million. They need every mm-hmm. advantage they can get. Mm-hmm. And so Grimley's like, you're undeniably correct about that. So he takes Tori and the war guard all the way to the edge of the forest. Okay, he takes Tori. Tori's war guard follows like a dog. Yeah. And this is where they have the conversation of, first of all, Grimly takes a bit of blood from Storm's face, Tori's mount. Mm-hmm. And Tori is like, oh, do you have to like do that to me too? And Grimly's response is, and send you into battle with a bandaged face? Burr would never talk to me again. <laughs> and as they start into the woods, Torison turns to his guard and he's like, you folks had better wait here. Mm-hmm. And... They all kind of, like, stand there hopelessly for a second and look toward the oldest in the group, who's just like, if we let you out of our sight, Harn, I love this also, Harn Mm -hmm. grip hard will nail our ears to the nearest tree. Yes. And we know that Harn would do it. I love it. I love, I love the perpetual quest to make Tori take his own well-being seriously. Oh, it's just wonderful. But so they leave the guard on the outside of the forest, obviously. Mm-hmm. And Tori and Grimley walk through the forest until they reach this clearing, like this hollow that's been carved into the bluff. Mm-hmm. And it's the it's sort of shaped like an egg, is how it's described. Mm-hmm. And it's full of ferns, and the, it's covered in mist, and like you can't see the sky from inside. Mm-hmm. It's very otherworldly. And Grimley describes it as the heart of the woods, as sacred ground. Mm-hmm. And he says that it was carved by the people who built Herlin, like it was created and sacred to the people who built Herlin so long ago that like Grimley's ancestors hadn't learned how to be like human yet. Mm-hmm. And um, he mentions specifically that there's a legend that they used to bring their enemies here and shout them to death. Yeah, yeah. Now, we did see that go down not that long ago. Yep. And, you know, Tori and Grimley have a little bit more of a conversation about it. And Tori's like, you know, I I suppose, like, this isn't that much use for us. And also, like, uh, we don't really belong here. Yeah. This place seems somewhat malicious. Yep. Yep. Tori is still kind of not suspicious. He's just kind of a little bit of a jackass. I love this. I actually do have this marked with Tori. You're such a jerk. (laughs) Because like, as soon as the two of them have started to walk away, he like whips back around and shouts into this like hollow boo at the top of his voice. And it scares Grimly so bad that he jumps five feet straight up into the air and comes down again as a wolf. Yeah, he's he's just he's like, don't do that. (laughs) And so they head back to Odalian's camp 
And the whole time as they leave, there's this like muttering echo of their shouting in the hollow. Mm -hmm. And as they go, some dirt like dislodges from these half obscured carvings on the heights of the cliff. It's really some lovely foreshadowing. It is. And I love in this whole, I mean, granted, we spent a lot of time on this world building, but it's extremely important for the next chapter. And it's also important in the rest of the books because this landscape is so central to what happens. And so there. Yeah. So then we get a cut to Mark and Jane who are on a barge going Mm -hmm. down the silver because they have decided to like fuck this walking thing. They just sort of hopped onto a barge. Mm -hmm. I think they stowed away. (laughs) No, they're they're legit. They paid with um, some buttons from Lyra's dress. Yep. Yep. And her dress is like shredded. It was a red dress it's and tattered. James describes her as a flame that just runs up and down because, you know, imagine this is the first time that at least we know because uh, we've read the rest of the books, but we, we know as first time reader that it's unlikely for that Lyra has experienced any freedoms of any kind. Mm-hmm. And so for these five days, she's able to run basically hog wild over up and down the boat. And she's throwing apples at, at the horses. And can I, can I talk about the ferry for a moment? How the fair, how the barge yeah. is set up. Okay. Like and it's between just... you and me, like make it quick. Cause oh, we still yeah. have like 16 pages i know the way that the barge goes down the the river is not through the power of the river but it's actually one of those there are horses on the bank and the horses are attached to a rope that's attached to the barge and the horses help to guide the barge down the river yeah they act as sort of a break yes lyra is throwing apples at the horses and she has not hit a single one because she has terrible aim. And and so the people who are actually running the boat... The crew are, are ready to kill her. Thank you. The crew are torn between finding it humorous and wanting to throw her overboard. So while all of this is going on, Jame reflects that, you know, Lyra has recovered quickly from Odalian's death Probably because she has never actually been in a situation where she's had to think about anything other than doing what she's been told to do. She's literally never been taught to care about stuff. And it's interesting because Jane reflects that she had previously thought that Lyra was half-witted, but really she has just never lived a life at all. And so she's kind of going bananas with how excited she is to be running around. Yeah. And it's in this context that Jame and Mark have a conversation. Yeah. Uh, this is also when Jame mentions that it's only been 26 days since they left Titastagon, which, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And so, but they catch up on what Mark was doing in, while she was in the master's house, they kind of catch up on what each of them were doing. And we find out that while Mark was in the house, he was actually in that in that room where there was the the little island in the middle of the that empty space moat. The cage with the without was, bars. Thank you. The cage without bars. And Joran had hunted Mark down and found him, and was sitting on the far side, uh, on the other side of the moat, meowing piteously because he just missed his friend and he wanted someone to be with. Um, and Cra and Joran had 
whined and cried until he was almost hoarse and <laughs> probably driving Mark crazy. Mark had just decided, okay, I'm going to go to sleep and then tomorrow morning I'm going to find a way to leap across this gap so that I can get to this poor cat. And when Mark woke up, Joran was curled up next to him and someone had put a plank over the, over the gap. And yeah. James is like, well, I know, I know who did that. Yeah. And she's like, it could have even been Tarandus. Like sh- her initial thought is that it's probably Bender, but it, there's no, she's like it, unless Tarandus was explicitly ordered not to do that specific mm-hmm. thing, it could have even been him. Yeah. And Mark talks about finding the temple. Did you want to talk about that? I don't really think that we need to talk about that. I mean, I think that That's clearly. Legit. Basically, the relevant detail is that Tarandus's plan worked exactly like he intended it to Mm -hmm. he locked the priests and the acolytes in without food or water and by the time mark reached them every last person in the temple was dead and just absolutely brittle from the power of it and he mentions that when he gave them the rights of the pyre they all went up like straw yeah and so mark in his in his catching jame up says that eventually the boy you call graken found us and it's at that point that jame is the one who speaks into the silence the re- yeah because this whole time he's been calling her my lady and yep. like it's hard to read it is hard and this is again where Jame doesn't flinch from having difficult conversations. This would be a situation that would be really easy and it would be within her rights to just kind of skip over this conversation and try to find a way to get back to some level of equilibrium. But Jame addresses it. She just dives right in and just makes the comment that it's never going to be the same between the two of them. And Mark is really... Again, he is everything that is good about the Kenserath. And he says, no, it, it, how could it be the same? But cheer up. We just have to strike a new balance. And we will eventually. Just give it time. And I just really love that, that Mark trusts the relationship that has developed between himself and Jame. And while the context of their relationship has changed, he still has faith in the relationship that they've built. And yeah. that's an incredibly powerful element here and it shows up again at the end of the chapter i mean as yandri he was never bound to a lord he he only had the reliance on the relationship with the lord as a person yep like that's been his entire life yeah since the fall of uh his home keep so yeah yeah and so we have at this point really several pages of James' reflection and just yeah. this experience of them getting off of the barge and going into Hurlin. And what I think is powerful about this is that it's... She's almost... stressing about Graken hardcore. Yeah. And the reason that she's stressing about it is because rather than making one assumption and sticking with it, she's reflecting on on the different possible possible situations that are present. Thing is, is that she realizes that if Graken did not tell Mark and Lyra about Tyrandus, then... They would never have let him leave with Kinslayer. Exactly. Like, Mark would have stopped him because Mark knows that's Ganth's sword. Exactly. And Mark would have expected 
an explanation. But she recognizes that the best explanation that Graken could have given would have been the truth. Also, she knows that Graken wouldn't have lied. So exactly. she's been operating under the assumption that since Graken told Mark and Lyra everything, mm -hmm. Graken would also tell Torison everything. And now in Herlin, she's suddenly confronted with like, ooh, he didn't actually promise me anything and I'm kind of trusting a complete stranger to keep his word and... While I'm sure he'll keep his word because he's Kensier, ooh, he didn't actually give me his word. Exactly. And that's just it. And I think that that's really powerful because we have seen as the reader, Jane, ruminate and reflect and consider all these different possibilities, possible scenarios. And I think that it's so powerful to have that reflection where she, again, she doesn't shy away from the reality that it's entirely possible that Graken withheld essential information because it would not have been a lie of omission because he never gave her his word. So she actually thinks about, okay, well, if that's the case, then what do I do? And her rumination really includes these different perspectives of, well, you know what? I could just show up to Torison and to tell him about Odalian, but what kind of a situation would that create? And she kind of dreams into that. Because she knows regardless that the general populace still believes that Odalian is Odalian because yes. the Karkanoran army is still there and they are being allowed to, like, do business and hurlin and it's not a problem. But she's like, if I just roll up and Tori knows and he's planning something, yep. he's immediately going to be confronted with the problem of, like, hey, let me explain my suddenly appearing twin sister. Who's ten years younger. Like, let me suddenly explain this situation, this fucking chestnut to everyone. Mm -hmm. And she's like, that's definitely not going to help save his life. Yeah. So that's not the ideal outcome here. I think part of it, you know, on the one hand, Jame is definitely, like, logical and cold enough to, like, make that call, but also part of this is that she's scared of going to see Tori. Yes. A big part yes. of this is that she's coming up with justifications not to go to him because she's afraid of what he'll say. Yes. There's- that is definitely true. And the other aspect is that Lyra has not shut up. She has talked pretty much the entire yeah. time. Jamie's weirdly well-informed as compared to literally any other time in her life. Exactly. And not only that, because of her experience in the Thieves' Guild and because of her experience with the politics in Titastagon, she's able to glean from Lyra's incessant chatter a lot about the political situation and what Lyra's father thinks about Taurison. Yeah. And that informs her of what, how she's going to move forward. Because, of course, Lyra's information is all like, oh, well, you know, the high, like, she's either forgotten or never actually understood who Jame was. Yes. And she's like, oh, well, you know, the High Lord is like, he's such a piece of work. He's such an upstart. Like, my dad's gonna, like, when my father hears about this, like, yep. you know, insert Draco Malfoy here. And Jame, of course, who's very smart, is sitting there and listening to this. And she's like, oh, cool. So Caneron's really a fucking piece of work, huh? Yeah. And so over these pages, as they're like moving in this travel, Jame is reflecting on all of these different paths of choice and all of these different paths of how things could unfold. And she finally kind of settles on the recognition that in the face of this political uh, Jenga tower, Meyer, <laughs> she recognizes that the only way that she can know if Graken told Torison is to ask Torison himself 
if Graken informed him. But she cannot ask Torison without being seen by the council in whom Kaneron sits and presides. Yeah. And so as a result, it's a she's, bad situation, she, actually. She is just sitting in this holding pattern where she doesn't know anything, but she can't find anything out. Yeah. And that kind of covers these four pages where she's really reflecting on all of these different experiences of the last, essentially, you know, two books. And there are a couple of little tiny scenes that I just want to touch on. And are you good with that? Yeah. Okay. One of them is the point when Jame and Mark are at dusk. Oh, yeah. They're looking so out over the land. I want to talk about this a little bit. And Jame mentions that she says, well, it's, it's still the dark of the moon. And she tells Mark about an experience that she had when she oh, and Tori so were children. I'm glad that she finally fucking tells someone anything truthful about her life, ab- and this about her is, childhood. It's such a good moment. It is. And this is so huge because... This on the heels of this brief chat that she and Mark had about finding their balance and finding their equilibrium. She tells him more about herself and more about her life than she's ever told him before. And about Torison. This makes and Mark the, one yes. of very few people in the world who's probably ever heard a story of Tori as a kid. Yes, exactly. And she includes their tutor, Anar. And what I really wanted to address is this. When Jame talks about what she and Tori had reflected on, Mark says soldiers say the same thing that you and Tori said and your tutor Anar said for the same reasons. And this is right here, this commonality and this common ground that the two of them share, which is unlike pretty much anything we see anywhere else. And I really think that's powerful. Well, because this is historical fact as far as the Kenserath are concerned also. It is. It is. But even deeper than that, for me, it is the personal experience that both Mark and James share. And that is this connection that really speaks to, well, for lack of a better word, the connection that they have as friends. So that was one thing that I wanted to talk about. And the other thing that I wanted to talk about was that the room that they got in the inn and they... They were able to get the room in the inn because they gave the innkeeper half of the pearls that were on Lyra's bodice. It was just big enough to swing Joran in if anyone wanted to do such a thing. I love that kind of thing where it's like a a common idiom that we know in our world adapted to fit a new one. Yeah, that's that's I just I love the way that authors come up with like things to fill those gaps. Yes, me too. It's delightful to me. Just like in Titastagon, when Jame was having trouble working out a problem, she would go out and wander around on the roofs. She leaves the room and goes wandering around in this overpacked city that's getting ready for a battle and a siege with Joran, just so that she can kind of clear her head. Yeah. And the line that I just wanted to touch on is that as she's walking around, she talks about the scent and the smell of the city. And she realizes that this is what it's like to go among men who knew that by tomorrow night they might be dead. I also really wanted to talk about that if you don't mind. Yeah. You're done. I'm really glad. Let's talk about that and then I'll talk about something else. Go ahead. I just, I think that's really like an impactful line because we're used to thinking of Jame as very worldly with a lot of diverse experiences and a lot of like knowledge of what combat 
looks like. Mm -hmm. But this line really kind of drives home that sort of, much like we're used to thinking of Tori as very competent and a good leader and like someone with experience leading an army, but he's never led a battle this big. And not just because no one's led a battle this big, but because like this wasn't his job. He had a boss for this in the the Southern host. Yeah. And like with Jaime here, this character that we're used to thinking of as so like worldly and so versed in this kind of thing, she's never seen war. She's never been to war. She's all her fights have been so personal and like literally intimate on a lot of levels. Like they're fights for her soul, fights for her future, fights for her family or her like home. And this is the first time that she's been exposed to an army on the eve of battle. And like that line is such a concise way to remind us of that. And I love it so much. Yeah, I do too. And it also really kind of drives home just how stressful the situation is. Yeah. And just how imperiled every single person on this whole area is. Yeah, because these are Karkanorans. These aren't Kensir. The Kensir are really keeping to themselves. The host Mm -hmm. is like on the other, they're on the upper meadow and they're not interacting with Karkanor and they're not interacting with Herlin. So these men aren't even career soldiers. Like these are just whoever Tyrandus could rally in a short period of time. Yep. And again, what came to mind for me was Henry V. Yep. Fuck yeah, it is. I love that repetition. I mean, Ms. Hodgel is so good at using this this rhyme of reflection. And it's just so beautiful. The last thing that I want to talk about in this particular section is when Jame and Joran are on one of the catwalks in between these two buildings. And as she's looking out over the city, Torison and the council and the host begins to show up into Hurlin. Oh, 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 before we talk about this. Yes. This because that's a little later. As she's sitting there and considering what her options are, for a second, she thinks about whether it would be better if Tyrandis won. Yeah. Oh, and I'm I, so glad you reminded me. I, I'm really invested in that because like very much like I, I waxed endlessly rhapsodic about with Bane, I think that this kind of thing works so much better than just like the standard like, oh, like kill me and you'll become me. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're the hero and we're so alike. Like, I think this works so much better because for a second, Jame is standing there and she's sitting, she's going over events and she's going over possible outcomes and she's like, from a totally cold-blooded stance, Tyrandus is a master tactician. He's out to destroy the master any way he can. Maybe we'd be better off. Like, it might destroy the Kenserath, but it might end Perimal Darkling too. Like, Mm -hmm. if anyone was going to pull that stunt off without, like, letting the Master know what they're doing, it would be Tyrandus. He might be an incredibly valuable ally. Maybe I should let him win. Yeah. Yeah, and I just, I think that's so much more effective than, like, if this had been Tyrandus himself being like, oh, you know, you know, come to the dark side or, like, Mm -hmm. the slightly medium dark gray side. Like... You know, that because, like, this is Jame herself, completely independent of Tyrandus's influence, being like, no, like, from a totally heartless point of view, he might be a better bet. Like, that might be the horse you want to bet on for this. Yeah. And, like, 
that's so much more impactful to me in much the same way that like Bane's pitch of like we're alike hits much more strongly to me because Jane was thinking it first. Yes. And so I just I wanted to mention that because like this is a very short lived thought. It's like a paragraph. And then she's immediately like, of course, this is the wrong option. Like, <laughs> I want to belong. Yeah, absolutely. But like, not at the cost of Torison's life. And yes. I'm only thinking this way because Tyrandis already thinks better of me than I'm afraid Torison ever will because yes. I'm Shanir. And she like immediately kind of nips this in the bud and sets it aside. But I really wanted to talk about it because I'm incredibly like, I'm incredibly interested in that mindset. Yes. Like I said, that's just so much more interesting to me than the villain straight up being like, oh, we're so much alike is when the hero's like, ooh, like, actually, we sort of are alike. And mm -hmm. I don't ever want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad that you that you reminded me about this because she's had a very similar reflection when she's been when in the last chapter when she was thinking about Graken and how her need to belong is no less it's very than similar to need to belong. It's very, very similar. And it's because she's willing to think about this about, yeah, strategically, it would be a lot better if Tyrandus actually got his way because all of this could be over. And I think that that is such an important beat before we get into everything that happens. Especially because it's not the first time. Like, mm -hmm. just in the last chapter, her answer to the unsolvable problem of, like, I can't run because I'll just mm -hmm. come back to the master's door. I can't yep. go inside because I'll lose my honor forever and destroy my people. Yeah. So what do I do? And, like, the thing she comes to is, like, well, Tyrandus was right. Better that I die here. Yep. So, like, part of the reason that I, I'm so interested in this aspect of her character is because it's so completely without sentiment. Yeah. Whether it's her life or the life of the person she loves most in the world, she's still completely capable of sitting there and being like, no, like, this is the linear answer. This is the mm -hmm. quick, this is the quick way to victory. Yeah. Yeah. And so on the heels of that, she sees Torison and the council yes. come into Hurlin. And do you want to talk about this? Do you mind if I do? Please. First of all, as as O'Dalian and Torison start to come into the city, she hears this chanting, which is what alerts her to their presence. And she's able to parse it from the Easternese cognate because they're speaking Southern, which is very dissimilar to Easternese, except for a couple of shared cognates. Which is just a really cool, like, you know, not everyone has to be linguistics George Tolkien sitting in his cave and creating 10,000 languages a day. Like, you can also kind of create the impression of a wider linguistic world with one of these nods like, you know, Easternese and Southern don't have a ton in common, but the word for your highness is pretty close. Similar to if you're an English speaker and you hear the the word for king or queen in basically any romance language, it sounds similar to regent. Sort of the same premise. And so she rushes to the edge of the catwalk she's on and looks down to see Odalian walking beside Torison. And I'm so I'm so in love with this moment of James seeing Tori again for the first time because we just got in the previous chapter Kindry seeing James for the first time and his first thought being like this has to be Torison like they look so much alike and the way she recognizes Torison after literally most of their lives spent apart is that she 
she just, she takes a glance at him and she's like, oh no, like, I was concerned I wouldn't know him when I saw him, but I know everything about him. I know the way he moves. I know the way he walks. I know the way, like, his hair catches the light. It's exactly like seeing myself in a mirror when I don't expect it. Yeah. And she's standing there and kind of like, she recoils from this sight of him, partly because she doesn't want to be seen, but also because there's this feeling of cold shock of having seen him and having recognized him that I'm absolutely enthralled by. And specifically, one of the things she recognizes in this feeling of like, oh no, like that's, that's me and therefore that's him, which is, it's so compelling. Like the, the connection they have even after everything is so intrinsic to themselves. Yeah. It's, it's really a part of their core identity because I've talked a lot about how G Tori through this whole book is he's always just barely holding off this crushing grief for his sister. And it's clear that even though he believes that he hasn't had a sister in 23 years, he still thinks of himself as a twin. Yeah. And like, yeah, in a in a people who have this universal psychic link, it's so it's so interesting to me how much a part of each other they still are. And yeah. so James having recognized him with this attitude of like, no, like, that's me, that's him. Mm -hmm. is so moving and impactful and I love it and I've beaten both those words to death in this ramble but like the thing that I really like here among the many things I just listed as really enjoying them is that she sees Tori shoot this like wry crooked smile at Odalian yeah. And she hasn't seen Tori in years. He's so much older than her now. She would have every reason to be like, okay, like, I don't, I, I could be paranoid about this. I don't know, like, I don't know him anymore. Mm -hmm. But she's like, no, like, that's the smile I give to people I trust. Yes. So he can't know what's going on. Okay, like, answer, question answered. Graken didn't tell him. Yep. Because she sees in Tori an expression she recognizes from her, the inside of her own skin. And I'm, it's such a short encounter. Like, it's, yeah. it's half a page at most. And I'm absolutely obsessed with it. Yeah. Again, it's such a wonderful parallel of James seeing herself and her understand it's it's really beautiful I yeah yes yeah so while she's watching Torison and his cohort go through the city she sees that there's also some other Karkanoran nobles kind of scuttling after them and some mm -hmm. Kensier Highborn and she notices one of them who uh this description reminds me very much of the uh description from earlier in the book of comparing Kaneron and Torison and yes. Torison looking like heirloom steel in a velvet sheath, and Caneron appearing by comparison both overdressed and overweight. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like, it, there's a separate conversation to be had about, like, these books get better as they go on about, like, not correlating being fat with being evil. Like, that mm -hmm. improves a lot as these books mm -hmm. continue. Like, insert, you know, spiel here about, I think the first one of these was published in what, fucking 1982? Yep. So that improves a lot. But specifically, one of the things that's always associated with being a bad highborn is mm -hmm. this opulence that yeah. Kaneron just lives in every second of every day. And so she notices one of these lords is just so richly overdressed and wears his finery so poorly. Mm -hmm. And that's the person she sees Greykin run up to. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And Jane yeah. is just standing there for a second and she's just like, I'm going to fucking kill him. And as Greykin runs back into the alley away from Kanoran, he scans the he scans the whole crowd he sees the and rooftops. his gaze his gaze meets James. And yeah. for a moment they stare at each other and then he ducks away and runs. And and even though James doesn't know exactly who Greykin spoke to, she she infers. Yeah, and she's specifically the line is that she doesn't know who he's spoken to, but his intentions are obvious. Yeah, yeah. So And obviously not great. Yep. Uh, so are you ready to talk about Greykin? Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about Greykin because the reason that Okay, full disclosure. We had like Greykin... a 20 minute debate about that comment about Greykin's choices in the summary for context. Yes. Yes. The the debate that we had is that Gabe calls it a bad choice and I called it Greykin made a choice. I muscled it through so, on the argument that I was the one reading the summary so she couldn't actually absolutely. stop me. Absolutely. <laughs> and I like, I like totally acknowledge that. But here's the reason why I wanted to advocate for this. And before I get into that, I just want to give just super brief context of, of yeah. this section because this section is told from Greykin's point of view. Yeah, I like and, getting Greykin's point of view here. It's really yeah. it's really cool. Yeah, and it provides a phenomenal foundation for Greykin in the rest of the books. And we begin to learn a lot more yeah. about Greykin than we ever wanted to know in, in later books. And it's on this foundation that the rest really stands. And so for Greykin, he's been in Hurlin for a few days as the book describes that he's wrestling with his conscience. Yeah, to his credit, he didn't instantly decide to betray Jame. Exactly. And in the context of this, his entire life has been formed around one goal, which was to gain a place in the Kenserath. Because of his birthright, he is half Southron and half Kensir. And the Kensir part is really like this genetic pull. He's always in this state of withdrawal. Because he's subject to that psychic bond. Exactly. It's no different than a Kendar who is without a lord. He's, it is, it is psychic distress that he has been in. So he's always been been seeking that acceptance in in the Kensir. And so he's always had this hope, but he always knew that that hope was simply impossible, but he couldn't stop hoping yeah. for that reality. And so from this bitter place, he reflects on the fact that James is the very first person in his entire life who trusted him and who did not call him the name that he hated so much. Yeah. And so in the context of that conflict, we are introduced to the fact that Graykin, he knows the forms of honor. And I underlined that phrase. And what I keep coming back to in my own reflection is that there's one other person who knows the forms of honor. There are actually two people who know the form of honor. One is Tyrandus, who knows the form of honor. And then the other one is Bane. Yep. And I think yep. that because if if we did not know Bane as well as we knew him, if we didn't know Tyrandus as well as we knew him through the experience of Jane, Graykin would be a much simpler character. It would be very clear that this is a black or white situation and he is the bad guy. But because yeah. of what we know... 
about Bane and Tyrandus. And because of the wrestling that we've seen Jane do with regards to honor, then we get a more impactful experience in in Graken's wrestling with his conscience. Now, that being said, this choice that Graken makes is uniformly bad. It is bad for everyone involved. It really doesn't benefit anyone, actually. It doesn't. (laughs) In the long run, this just isn't good for anybody. But because of the reader's close, intimate understanding of how Bane wrestled with honor, how Tyrandus wrestled with honor, the conversation of Imali with Jaime and the Ebon Bane, and that conflict, we have a deeper insight into, into basically this is, this is Graykin's Hail Mary pass in the same way that Jaime was like, well, fuck it. I might as well try this. In the same way, Graykin makes a choice. And from what we know about choice, whose name in his his entire life has literally been shit, he actually makes a choice and engages his own agency in an attempt to make a choice and make a stand. It's the wrong choice. It's got bad reasons. But the fact that he made a choice is something that we can understand a lot more because of the context. Yeah, yeah. So that's fair. That being said, Graken has had several days to reflect on this. Yes, I, I misspoke before. He did beat the others there by several days. And so he sits there for several days and wrestles back and forth. Kaneron is barely in the city when Graken runs up to him and gives him the information. And then as he is running away from this betrayal, catches Jame. I mean, this this kid has the worst luck. Oh, I mean, like... If, if it was anyone, but here's the thing. Here's the reason that I think I'm a little bit... Okay, first of all, I, I don't I don't like Graykin very much as a person. As a character, I find him really compelling, but I don't like him all that much as a person for reasons that become increasingly evident throughout the series. But I think the reason I'm a little bit harder on him about this specific instance mm-hmm. is because unlike a lot of the other characters we see who do make this kind of choice where they're like, well, this ain't the right call, but like, gotta do what you gotta do, I guess. Mm -hmm. Or who are making it from purely self-interested motivations, which Graken in his narration kind of like tiptoes around it, but it's obvious that this is a purely self-interested move. Yes. Even that I could absolutely respect. Like, there are Mm -hmm. plenty of characters in these books who work from a completely Machiavellian, the ends justify any means and the ends I am interested in are the ones that will benefit me kind Mm -hmm. of perspective, who I... I really genuinely enjoy in that capacity. And I think Graykin really tiptoes around admitting it. But the reason that I'm a little bit harder on him for this choice than I am on most of those people for those choices is that this is objectively the wrong move if he's looking for approval. And he's looking for approval specifically from Kaneron. I'm gonna give him this. Mm-hmm. For reasons we find out in the next chapter, he specifically wants Kaneron's approval. Yes. Yes. He wants a place in Kaneron's household. No one else will do. But, like, he could have made himself like unto a fucking god if he mm-hmm. had approached literally any other lord. Yeah. Literally any other lord. Like, Randir would have paid through the nose for this information. Mm-hmm. Ardeth mm-hmm. would have made him a prince. Mm-hmm. Torison would have put him in his own household. He yeah. could have been, um, like, anyone... Anyone would have been a better choice, but of course Kaneron brushes him off. Of course he does. And I'm not saying that I don't totally understand and sympathize 
where Graykin is coming from with this, but, like, I don't know, like, th because this is a completely self-interested move that is also just objectively the worst possible outcome for a self-interested motive, like, motivated person, mm -hmm. I'm a little harder on him for this choice than I might otherwise be. Well, and I, I want to be clear, I am hard on him as well. I mean, this, oh, yeah. is, this is a terrible choice. I listed earlier while we were debating all of the people for whom this is the wrong answer. Oh, and yeah. And it's everyone from Graken to Kaneron to Jame to the fucking Kenserath as a whole. Yeah. Exactly. It's even the wrong answer for goddamn Tyrandus, which is impressive because yeah. Tyrandus has really set things up so that he doesn't have a lot of wrong answers anymore. Yeah. And the other, again, this is a chapter that's all about parallels for me. And so part of why this is such a powerful parallel is that Graykin has been Lyra's servant yeah. for his whole life. And Lyra has been ensconced in her own little bubble and doesn't know anything about the world, which means that Graykin doesn't know anything about the world. Yeah. And, and so the way that I've looked at this is that this right here is something that I as the reader or we as the reader have a little bit more accessible. This is more accessible to us than Bane, whose intellectual shenanigans about honor are so lofty. And Tyrandus, who is this creature of myth who's been wrestling with honor for thousands of years. And whereas Graykin, he's just a fucked up kid fucking up in a fucked up world. He's what, like 30? He's like a grown man. He is. Well, yeah. But, but like, he's, he's also a child. Like, he's exactly. He's lived a, like, ironically, for someone who has been a spy literally his entire life, because he was assigned as Lyra's servant, and because he's lived so much of his life just in the single-minded pursuit of Kaneron's approval and affection, he's, like, he has kind of intentionally shell like, he's intentionally blinkered himself. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I, I agree with you that this is unilaterally the worst decision that could possibly have been made for everyone involved. And I honestly think that the, on a little tiny bit, Graykin knows how powerful this information is. He knows how huge it is, and he knows the impact that it could have on the, on the Kenserath as a whole. And yet, I honestly believe that Kaneron's reaction, his wholesale reaction on every single beat of this information is horrifying even for Graykin. He's horrified by what has by what has transpired well go ahead sorry i thought you i thought that was the end of your sentence it was it was almost but his his shock and his essential i mean when he like throws everything up it's not just that he that his own acceptance has been thwarted but that the weight of what he's done is really disgusting him yeah i mean like on the one hand yeah definitely like Mm -hmm. He goes and he just lays everything out for Kaneron, every last detail, and, like, he has long since done the same math that Kaneron is doing now, which is that yep. more than anything else in the entire world, Kaneron needs a blood claim on the High Lord's seat, which means he, he mm -hmm. needs a direct heir, either a grandson or a son, with North blood, which he's been trying yep. to achieve with forcing... Torison to take Calistine, his daughter, as a consort, but that's not panning out. So, like, Graykin is well aware by the time he gives this information 
that he has possibly just consigned Jame to a fate worse than death. Yes. And the, like, this is kind of a spoiler, but I, I, like, you're right, but also we're explicitly told by Graken himself that if Caneron had paid him what the information was worth, Graken would have taken the payment and gotten on with his life. And, mm-hmm. like, I guess we, we have no way of knowing whether or not that's the truth, because, like, it's that's an alternate future we don't know anything about. But, like, yeah. I genuinely believe that Graken would have taken the payment. Mm-hmm. Because for Graken, that payment is acceptance. Yeah. And because, like, the thing that ultimately puts him over the edge here is that he's, like, for this information that could, again, literally make Kaneron the most powerful man in the Kenserath, genuinely the most valuable information since Torison's ascension to High Lord. Mm-hmm. His payment for that is enough coinage to just about barely get him back to Karkinaroth. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the, like, the specific line is, you're worth every bit of it, Gricky. Mm-hmm. And Graken actually speaks up and <sighs> says to Kaneron, please don't call me that. And I think that's why what's so powerful about this is that Graken made a choice. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it's a bad choice. It is a unilaterally bad choice across the board. And there's no redemption in here for this. But the fact that Graken made a choice is something that we can reflect on repeatedly every time Graken shows up. And he shows up a lot with Jaime, and I can't wait to talk about the next chapter. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to talking about the next chapter as well, because I really care, I'm really invested in in this book, especially Graken and Don Carey mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. parallels. Yes. Well, obviously in this book especially. Yes, yes, <laughs> but I'm bummed. <laughs> but I'm tss, uh, here all week. But yeah, no. So I don't know. It's it's complicated. I'm going to talk more later about why I don't like Graken that much. Like, I, I find him a very compelling character. I'm interested in his arc. I certainly don't think he's responsible for a lot of the things that happen sort of around him later. But I don't like him that much as a person. Yeah. And I'm I'm excited to talk about that a little bit more because I, I know that you are you're pretty invested in Graken. He's incredibly compelling. Yeah, that's that's kind of why I opted for the phrase invested in rather than you, like he's your personal fave. Yeah. He's not overly likable as a character as a person. But yeah, no, I it's it's a it's a fascinating and for all that I just did talk about not liking Graken that much, sincerely heartbreaking conversation with Kaneron because like Yeah. Again, literally, literally, he is offering to make Kaneron High Lord in every way that matters. Yep. And he doesn't just explain everything. He's also like, I saw this girl in the city 20 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Like, I can give her to you. Like, here's her address. Here's everything. Mm -hmm. And like, all of that information, all it gets him is like, why wouldn't I call you Gricky? It's your name, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's hard to read. Like, even, even though, again, like, I've had nine books to like, kind of not like Gricken that much as a person. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't wish this on anyone. Like, in the yeah. same way that even Nusser, who's horrible, mm-hmm. that conversation he has with his father is brutal yeah, before is. his death. Yeah. That conversation of, like, well, I guess I'd better go cram this coin back down the High Lord's throat if the next best thing I can do is die. Yeah, yeah. And, it, yeah, it's very compellingly done. It's it's 
Kaneron is so compellingly horrible. Yeah. Because it would be so easy for him to be like almost a comic villain. Because the reason that I, I say this is not good, not a good choice for anyone, including Kaneron, is because if Kaneron was more competent, this would be a great outcome for him. Yep. But he's awful at everything. Yeah. He's just really bad at everything he sets his hand to. And it would be easy for that to be a comic villain kind of archetype yeah but instead he's just this creeping cruel old man who's con like obsession with control and hurting other people to get that control is just sickening to watch yeah there's one last thing that i would just want to touch on about graken before we get into jane cool can i do that yep okay the last thing that I just want to mention is that, you know, uh, Graken leaves and there's this one little beat. He's he's standing by the river in the dark and his mind is so he's sorting out new possibility and killing old hopes. This guy's too smart for the Caneron. <laughs> it's at this point that he throws up because he's so oh, he's so disgusted by everything that's happened. And then he sees four Kendar and a shorter man muffled in a cloak. And Graken's like, yeah, I know that disguise. He knows that it's Kaneron, and so Graken follows him. Yeah, which that's going to be important in the next chapter. It will. It's also, it's relevant that he tells Kaneron that he saw Jame in the city not quite 20 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. And then at the start of this next sec section with Jame, we're told that it takes her almost 20 minutes to get back yep. to their room. Yeah, yeah. And so, so there's just one thing that I really, really wanted to mention in this scene with Jame and Mark. Yeah. And it is that uh, Jame gets back and she, you know, he tells, Mark is totally calm. You know, he's he's a warrior. You know, he's just sharpening his war axe. I think you also get unflappable do, after do, long do. enough around Jame. Like, if you survive more than a couple years with her, you're like, nothing fucking surprises me anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. But Jame gets back and she's like, Mark, you need to take Lyra and you need to take it out. You need to get out of here. Take Lyra to my brother and tell him this. And she spills all of the beans about Graykin. She explains everything that's happened. And Mark shifts right away from being very laid back and an old veteran who, you know, nothing shocks to being very businesslike. And he wakes up Lyra and he's like, okay, we are going to go. We are going to leave right now. This is really serious. And then Jame tells Mark to take Joran with him. Yeah. And I love this beat that happens because Mark gives Jame a hard look and then is just like, well, okay. He totally recognizes that shit's going to break bad really fast, but I'm going to honor my friend's wishes by taking her cat. Yeah, and because it's... It it's never a good sign when James sends Joran away. Yep. And like here, it's so evident that Mark is like, you're expecting to be caught in the battle. Yep. Yep. Also, I think it's, I, I really like that James, for all her anxiety about seeing Tori again, and for all her anxiety about like, oh my God, he's high Lord. Like, I don't know how to deal with that. Like mm -hmm. not, not sure how to cope with that problem. Even for all of that, I think it's very telling that she always thinks and talks about him as her brother first. Mm -hmm. And as long as we're on the subject of names, from Graykin's point of view, we don't get Graykin's POV until after Jane gives him the nickname Graykin, mm -hmm. which I think is relevant because it's the only way we ever see him think about himself. Yep. And again... Just because I don't necessarily want to spend my free time with the guy doesn't mean that I don't find him a profoundly tragic character yeah, in whom yeah. I'm very invested. Yeah. But so James sends 
Mark and Lyra and Joran out of the city. And she's like, you have to get to Torison and you have to tell him everything. You have to catch him up. And then you have to like keep him alive, basically. And even more important, do not give Lyra to the Kanoran until after you have explained everything to Torison. Yeah. That's hugely important. I think I've I've always kind of wondered, Hoss, is she a hostage? I think it's not that she's a hostage. I think it is that this is the only way that she can think of to protect Mark's life. Yeah. So she's not so much a hostage as she is a... She's leverage. Collateral. Yeah, collateral. She's collateral. She's collateral. That's a much better way of putting it. Which, again, I love that Jame really is capable of... Hey, on the one hand, she recognizes that Lyra is basically a child. But on the other hand, like, mm, she'd rather see Mark get out of this. Yeah. And there's this one beautiful scene of... Of Mark holding Joran under one arm, who is making his protests very well known. And then, you know, holding, like a cat, like a cat. And then holding Lyra in the other hand, who is protesting very sleepily. And Mark, calm and unflappable as always, says, be careful. And James' response is, aren't I always? And Mark laughs and leaves. I just love that little tableau. Yeah. All right. They leave... And James' first move, she's like, all right, like, I know Graykin ratted us out. Yep. I, I know Graykin ratted us out. He absolutely has to if he knows where I am. So her first move is to pry up the floorboards of their room with the ivory knife and stuff the book bound in pale leather underneath. And her stance is like, you can take care of yourself. Yep. I am pretty sure I'm about to be kidnapped. Because no sooner does she get the floorboards back into place than she hears people climbing the stairs and so she backs out onto this absolutely decrepit old balcony mm-hmm. outside their room just in time for Kaneron to come through the door and i i'm i love her so much she's so smart like i know i i know i put like i i complain a lot about jane being an idiot but she's really just so absolutely brilliant because as soon as this guy shows up, she's like, my Lord Kaneron. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's it's a calculated risk based on everything she knows from Lyra and everything she's heard from Graken, but she's absolutely right. Yep. And they have this really uncomfortable conversation of Kaneron threatening Jame to some extent. Mm-hmm. And he's like, You're, you sent your escort and my daughter and your cat right into my arms. Yep. He's got all three of them. They had to whack Mark upside the head poor, again. Poor Mark. Who's now been hit four times in the head in the past 26 days. Mm-hmm. And as Kaneron crosses the room and talks about like how much he's gained from this interaction... Jame is backing out across the balcony, and of of course the fucking balcony gives out of under course. her. And, like, she tries to save herself, and she just falls straight through the floor, 30 feet down into the river. Yep. And that's the end of the chapter. It doesn't just end there. It ends with Herlin already a distant dot and the cataracts getting closer. Yep. Her luck sucks. Yeah. Like, this isn't even her being a dumbass. Her luck is just really shit. Ugh, I love her so much. She's so, she's so wonderful. She really is. Will you read the whole last paragraph? I would love to read the whole last paragraph. Yay! The balcony sagged. Nails screeched in wood. For a moment, Jane balanced precariously, feeling her heart pound. Someone in the nearest tower cried out. 
It sounded like Graykin. Then one end of the structure tore loose and she fell, 30 feet down into the river. The impact knocked the breath out of her. When she surfaced, gasping, Herlin was already 50 feet away, rapidly receding. The swift current had her. From ahead came the sullen roar of the rapids, and beyond that, the cataract's boom. Holy shit. I love this writing. Oh. It's so, it's such a, mmm. Yeah. Hodgel yeah. is so great at combining, like, the way that a sentence is structured in such a way that a long paragraph like that really, the short staccato sentences followed by, like, the longer multiple clauses. Oh, it's so yeah. good. So I'm so beautiful. Technically, I'm really into it. Yeah. Anyway, so beautiful. Thank you all so much for bearing the fuck with us through this episode. <laughs> we have, we are both. It has so tired. This chapter is really not long enough to justify how long this episode's gonna be. We're both so tired. God damn. Uh, I'm sorry for the delay on the last episode, but like, I hope you can tell that like we're doing our fucking best. We are. Here. We are. We are totally doing our best. Anyway, uh, are you, you ready? Are do you... that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna do. Uh huh. Do the yep. thing. I'm gonna do the thing. Yep. Good. <laughs> do that. I'm gonna watch some fucking Danny Phantom or something after this. I'm not a person. <laughs> Holy shit. This has been the podcast found in pale leather. Thank you all so much for joining with us today. Please feel free to send us your thoughts about Dark of the Moon or Godstock on Tumblr. Everyone who at... talks to us is so nice. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> at the podcast found in pale leather or via email at podcastboundinpaleleather at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, which, okay, full disclosure, I haven't gone out to Twitter in, like, a while. But Twitter, our Twitter handle is at podcastbipl. Oh, someone got, got a Tumblr just to follow our Tumblr? Oh, uh, hi. Oh, I, hi. Hi. <laughs> Y'all are wonderful. As always, a very special thank you to Seth Jones for our intro and outro music. Love you, man. Next week, we are diving into Chapter 15 of Dark of the Moon, The Killing Ground. Oh god, that title just gets worse every time I hear it. It's a it is a 41-page chapter and it is packed. Y'all, I'm so fucking hyped to talk about this chapter. Oh. I'm so re I my girlfriend who is by the way a saint. <laughs> listen to me talk for an hour about this chapter this morning while horribly hungover <laughs> and I just like I've never loved a human being so much in my life. <laughs> Babe, you're great. When you inevitably get around to this episode, you're super great. <laughs> I am so goddamn ready to talk about this next oh, chapter. Oh, God. Me too. Me too. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. I love talking about these books with you, Gabe. Yeah, I'm Gabe. I'm Catherine. We're tired. We're, we're fucking done. <laughs> we're done. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs>